Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How time flies, or so the saying goes, and I agree, because it's difficult to believe that it's seven years since I first met and interviewed John O'Leary in Cove. Remember John? Born in Carrig Row near Clonakilty. Rode a tinker's donkey into a classroom one day. Joined the Gardaí in 1942, spending 13 years in the force. He was present in a courtroom as a man was sentenced to hang. He confronted Eamon de Valera at an election rally in Bray in 1954. Was blamed for the Battle of Bray, although he was nowhere near at the time. And there were also the stories about Dublin's wonderful characters. Characters like Christy Brown, Brendan Behan, Margaret Pierce, sister of Padraig Pierce. And, oh yes, how could I forget? There was also the story about dancing with Ellen Comiskey, a wonderful lady who was queen of the Moor Street Traders. This dancing episode happened, by the way, while John was still on duty. So, while you're wondering how anybody could fit all of that into one lifetime, I travelled to Cove this evening once again to interview John, now in his 97th year. I always have so much fun in his company, and this evening should be no exception. So, as Jimmy Cricket used to say, and there's more, stick around if you want to hear it. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Well, on this evening's program, you'll hear a strange amalgamation of characters and events. For instance, the story of Fatima and Margaret Thatcher, the story of Margaret Thatcher and the Yorkshire Miners, the story of Margaret Thatcher, the Hunger Strikers and Jury Fit, celebrating St. Patrick's Day every year in Leicester in the UK, and why, and sorting the election agitator and a sad end for three Garda colleagues. But before we get into all of that, let me tell you that life has not been a case of plain sailing for John, especially over the last few weeks. Remember again, he's 97 years of age, and only for his strength of spirit and physicality. I doubt very much if we would be sitting down in the Commodore Hotel in Cove to chat this evening. Believe you me, this is one hardy bio. Well, as I explained briefly to you, John, uh, I've been 21 years now back from England, and I made a practice every year to return to England, specifically to Leicester, where I lived for 28 years, to celebrate Patrick's Day with the Irish Day, because it's far better celebrated in Leicester than it is anywhere in Ireland. So the commercial stunt now here, the whole damn thing is turned into a non-religious affair, and uh, you'd have the Lord Mayor, on behalf of the citizens of Leicester, turn out in his robes or his chain of office, and uh, members of the council, and even if he was a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever else, he'd be there 
right up at the, at the altar. The Bishop of Nottingham would be there more often than not, bless the shamrock, and he'd present the shamrock to the Lord Mayor as uh, representing the city and to, and to the council members as well. It was a beautiful ceremony. And the whole thing was so well conducted. Cortus Coltorier and the youngsters over there providing the music and the singing. And the, the singing of St. Patrick's, hey, glory of St. Patrick's at the end of the Mass, we all join in with the vengeance, I'm telling you. We lift the roof. Absolutely. Regardless of your religious background. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Everybody joined in. And we'd have a great celebration in the, in the hall afterwards. And at one time, we'd have a dance in the, the Forester's Club that night, but that's gone. There's nobody to run it now. The old people are gone, and the young people haven't the same interest in it. So that's the story. This year, I was all booked for it. I completed my bookings in Bartles Travel in Cork on the 7th of March. I collected my tickets and was very happy heading for home. And I had about a half an hour to spare before I got my bus. So I, I went into Merchant's Key, had a look around there. There was no seat available. So I headed for the escalator upstairs, for upstairs. Got onto the escalator and was just, whatever happened, I lost my balance. And I was thrown back down to the ground and broke some ribs and damaged as many more and finished up in the, in the Mercy Hospital in Cork, where I was treated for most of a week. Then I was transferred up to a rehabilitation place in Corona Brower. And while I was there, I developed pneumonia. And if that wasn't enough, I had a slight stroke one morning, just as I finished my breakfast. Yep. So all three almost together? All three almost with it, with it. And I was back down again in, in the mercy. And finally I was transferred here for respite in local hospital here in Cove. So that's the story. That's the story. That's yeah. the story. I'm in my 97th year since the 12th of December. 97th? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you make the ton. Oh, I don't know about that. There's too many, too many pitfalls. And the old legs aren't great for one thing anyway. And, uh, now my doctor says I will, but uh, he, he's only following up in himself as the rest of us. We'll see. We'll see. There'll be a cavalcade to Arsenal throwing if, uh, if we get the President's uh, Centenarian's Prize of uh, 2,500 euro now. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, what, what yeah. you think? Not to be sneezed at. Absolutely, but at the same time, you're so old at 100. What shall you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, give it away. <laughs> John has quite a lot that he wishes to discuss this evening. Not surprising, really, for a man with 97 years on the clock. There's the Birmingham bombing to start with, carried out on November 21st, 1974, in two public houses in the city. It killed 21 innocent people and injured 182 others. Thoughts for the victims who lost their lives, and the obvious anger that followed towards Irish people in general, and those who became known as the Birmingham Six, wrongly accused, found guilty, and jailed for a crime they did not commit. But let's start with Bernadette Devlin, or Bernadette McAlisky, an Irish civil rights leader and former politician. She served as a Member of Parliament for Mid-Ulster from 1969 to 1974, one of the many people lucky enough to meet John O'Leary. She used to hold meetings at, at here in London, in Trafalgar Square. I was living in London at the time, in Trafalgar Square, and I always go up to, always go up to the meetings, and we'd have a chat underneath the statue of Nelson. <laughs> he looking down at us. He'd love that. Just a job he couldn't hear what we were saying. <laughs> he, said, he wouldn't be laughing at us. But she was a lovely person. I had great respect for her. And I always felt that the exiles 
appreciated the, the, Irish, the natives. I did not. The people that thought of the border. And I said that went right through the system, uh, the attitude to the north from, from the south. I may be wrong about that, but I always felt that, and even I haven't changed my mind since I came home. That even to Johnny Adams and everybody else, the, the attitude, I, I find it hard to explain it to myself, or to have, it, was, it was prevalent here, and is prevalent here still, that attitude. And uh, I don't blame them for feeling let down and, and uh, abandoned, which they were. Did you say you wanted to talk to me about Margaret Thatcher as well? Oh, we're, we're coming to her. Or are we coming to her? We're coming to her. All right. She's a, she's a milestone that couldn't be avoided. <laughs> <laughs> she shaped my life or, or misshaped it or other, <laughs> or the lives of many more people as well. I'm just, I'm a, in connection with that. I was um, thinking about the northern the, the North Island troubles and the way they impacted on the Irish in England, including myself. You know, the headings of the paper were so anti-Irish. After something happened, a bomb or anything else, the following morning we were branded bastards, Irish bastards, a full heading in one page, devoted to two words, and of course this does impact you on the service every way. I was fortunate enough, I didn't have too many incidents to deal with, but I was prepared for them, and I used, I made it the most possible use of it when I, when I was called on to use it, because we had an advantage that the people who were hostile to us didn't have. We had to live through history, we had we were the product of the of the invasion and the occupation and the, the ill-treatment. That was kept out of the history books very much over in England, you know. Privately, they were probably ashamed to detail it. Would you agree that the, generally the run-of-the-mill Englishman or Englishwoman is, is fairly understanding of all of this? Well, they're all right in the normal way until something happens. And the, if something like a bomb goes off, it, it ignites the whole thing and the anti-Irishness comes to the fore straight away. Yeah, and you have to be very careful, even in buses or anywhere else. If you open your mouth in an Irish accent, by God, you could be in trouble. Assaults and everything else on the basis that you were Irish. And you had, because you were Irish, you had to be one of the so-called bastards. We had that, and then you had the terrible bombing in, in, in Birmingham, where I lived for years, and where, where I moved in and out of very often, and stayed and, and lived there. And especially in the centre of the city, I used to stay in a hotel there, and very close to where the two pubs were bombed, the tavern in the town. Myself and a friend of mine from the hotel, one of the staff, we'd often nip in there for a drink, and the one around the corner, the Mulberry Bush. And Christ, they were both targeted. We were lucky we weren't there at the time. It just shows you how close you can become to these things, isn't it? Yeah. And the six people arrested for it and in jail for it? Uh, uh, innocent people. And if I was on the train that night with an Irish accent, I'd be hauled in and there'd be no excuses allowed or accepted ideals. They were just, they were just unfortunate. And it took so long and so much effort to, and protest and everything to, to get justice done to them. It was all too late because their lives had been destroyed, absolutely destroyed beyond repair. And any compensation they would get would be meaningless. So it was pretty tough being an Irish person. It was tough yeah. being an Irishman. Which I suppose is understandable. Oh, you could understand it, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how can anyone defend that the bombings are killing innocent people? So it was coldly and, and disgraceful and shameful to the country that was, on, on whose behalf it was being done as well. But to, to try and convey that to the people, in, uh, the victims. Margaret Thatcher features quite a lot in our conversation this evening. Her relationship, if you could call it that, with the Yorkshire miners and her relationship with the hunger strikers. She was British Prime Minister from 1979 to 1990 and leader of the Conservative Party for the same period. In this piece, John O'Leary makes reference to her Irish roots and claims that her ancestors came from County Kerry, something we decided to look into. And she was so anti-Irish, although all the more so 
because she was of Irish descent. She was, originally her people came from Kerry, from the Kinmare area of Kerry. They were Sullivans, and they changed their name to Selwyns. And uh, she became more British than the British themselves. This is a product of, of a, an Irish, an Irish exiled family. She became more British than the British themselves. And uh, she uh, displayed that uh, hostility towards Irish every opportunity she got. You had uh, the, the challenge to her about from the, from the prisoners. All they were asking, uh, certainly the important thing they were asking, was to be recognised as political prisoners. You're referring uh, now to the hunger strikers. Absolutely, yeah. the hunger strikers, exactly. And uh, a simple concession... No, no way in the way that they would. And a sad part of it all, I have his name here in front of me, who advised her not to give it to them? One of our own, Jerry Fitt, the MP for Northern Ireland, advised her not to, uh, She didn't need that advice because her mind was totally made up. I knew Jerry pretty well because my travel would take me sometimes staying in London and I would stay in the Irish club in Eaton Square and so would Jerry. He was always saying that when he was when he was in the House of Parliament, and of course he had his uh, defence equipment, his revolver. You, you, you know he had it inside the jacket and all the rest. But uh, he was all right. We had we, we didn't have much contact with one another. We ran to another occasionally. Paddy Devlin was another man to say that. But um, when, why do you think he advised her in such a manner? Well, I don't know. I, I took it up. I was going down there sometime afterwards. You know, he was rewarded with a, a seat in the House of Lords for his loyalty. Of disloyalty, depending on where you're looking for it from. But uh, I, I mentioned that to the receptionist in the, in the Irish club, I was booking in there for some reason or other, and I, mentioned, I asked her, Has I, I seen Jerry Fit lately? No, no, she said, He hardly comes in here now at all. Well, I said, That's just as well, because I wouldn't want to particularly to meet him after what he did. She said, How would you react? She said, If your house was burned. Now, I don't know if it was that house burning, and I don't think it ever came into to the phone, in the, in the press, or the television, or what caused it. So I booked in, and there was no, there was no more about it. In 1981, Jerry Fitt did indeed oppose the hunger strike in the Mays prison in Belfast. He contacted the Northern Ireland office, seeking assurances that the British government would not give in to the hunger strikers' demands. In 1983, he was declared a UK life peer and became Baron Fitt. The girl in the Irish club in the UK was right. His home was indeed firebombed a month afterwards, and later he moved to London. As regards Margaret Thatcher and her Kerry roots, the Sunday Independent reported a number of years ago that a dinner table conversation resulted in the Iron Lady revealing that her great-great-grandmother was an O'Sullivan from Ireland. This was after admitting beforehand that she was totally British. Now she admitted to being one-sixteenth Irish. I'm in Cove this evening in conversation with 97-year-old John O'Leary, who is 100% Irish. My conversation with him continues after the break.
This evening on Where the Road Takes Me, we bring you another episode in the lengthy, interesting and active life of John O'Leary, now in his 97th year. In the Commodore Hotel in Cove, he sits with me to talk about life after the Gardaí and moving to Leicester in the UK. Well, Fatima has become a famous shrine since the 1917 Marian apparitions reported by three shepherd children at the Cova da Iria in Portugal. While in Leicester, John O'Leary made three pilgrimages to Fatima, one of which he's about to tell us. Surprisingly, this particular pilgrimage and the story attached to it involves Margaret Thatcher, so the date must have been November 1990. One day, we were on an outing. We went to a place called Coimbra. No, the only city for the corner was this, that of the three children of the apparition, two of them had died, Jacinta and Francesco, they had died as children, but one of them, one of them lived to old age, and she became a nun in an enclosed order in Coimbra. And we travelled to Coimbra, we had mass in the convent there, and we were told that she was there, she'd be behind the screens. We wouldn't see her, she would see us, but we wouldn't see her. So that was it. We had the Mass there. And when we came out to Mass, the courier said to us, now it is time for a break, so you can go and have your lunch anywhere you like in the town, have a, a, a ramble around, and be back on the coach for 2pm. That was fine. We did what was expected of us. We had our lunch, and we walked our way back to the coach, boarded it, and settled down there. And just as we were about to, the engines were being revved up, and we were heading for our, for our travels, she said... I have an announcement to make. And she said, I've just been listening to the one o'clock news from the BBC, she said. And Margaret Thatcher is gone. She had been kicked out in the vault in the house apartment. Well, the bus exploded. <laughs> it must be a very solidly built bus that has survived the, the, the reaction to, to her departure. It was amazing, amazing. The relief, the joy, they, they couldn't contain themselves. They were from the part of England, from the, from the miners' area up to down. Oh, they were English on the bus? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, right. there, were, yeah. uh, there were a couple of Irish there, including yeah. myself, but they were north of England, from, from Leicester north, would you say? And the joy and the, joy and the celebration. I don't know how they celebrated that night, but by God, they celebrated there and then. And in my own heart, I joined with them because I was thinking the way she treated the, the prisoners all over a simple change of clothes. She, she had got her comeuppance. And it was a, a great thing to witness it that night. And I'm not a very vindictive kind of fellow, but I witnessed that night her departure from number 10 itself that, that day and the tears flowing down her face and the mascara making a line down through the mascara and she in tears there. And I thought to myself, well, you've got your compass at last. She had met her match. And John has an added piece to all of this, because in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher took on the coal miners, and in particular, their union president, Arthur Scargill. It was an extremely bitter battle that got worse when she described miners' leaders and the Labour Party as enemies of democracy. It was a measure of her extremism and determination for class revenge. However, after the IRA bomb attack on her Brighton hotel, she was persuaded to drop this line because of its divisiveness. To say that there was no love lost between the Yorkshire miners and Margaret Thatcher would be a complete and utter understatement. She died, as you know, in recent years, and I don't think she had made any will or any wish to be cremated. But the situation was this, and it had to be taken into consideration by the people dealing with the corpse and all the rest of it. The miners, the, the families and the miners themselves that were blackguarded and beaten into, into, the, into the earth, in, in Yorkshire, in, in the miners' strike, they had vowed that wherever she was buried, they would come and dig her up and throw her corpse to the winds. And they meant it, and it was taken, notice was taken of it, 
because she, she was cremated. And to this day, nobody knows where the ashes are. They were very careful to, to avoid any. But, yeah. Those were the days of Arthur Scargill. Absolutely. And the man was so right in what he was saying. The whole purpose of the, uh, the, the punishment to the mine, they wanted it. They were closed in the mines. They were getting rid of the mines. And he was, he was emphasising that. He saw that before a lot of other people saw it. And, and they didn't want that said. And that was the, the attitude. But he, the man was dead right. The mines are gone. So that was the end of uh, Margaret Thatcher's. What an amazing climb down. We, I don't know whether they actually were actually scattered. They would have been if the miners got hold of them anyway. Yeah. For the remainder of the programme, we return to John's days in Ireland. The 1948 general election was held on the 4th of February. The election would be the last before Ireland's withdrawal from the British Commonwealth and the declaration of the Republic of Ireland, which came into effect on the 14th of April 1949. A coalition government was formed which was regarded as being weak and not long-lasting. It consisted of old and young politicians, Republicans and Free Staters, Conservatives and Socialists. However, the coalition did last three years until May of 1951. As a young Garda, John was sent to a polling station in Harold's Cross in Dublin for that election in 1948. Back home now, back to the, the days of the Garda Corner, and... Uh I recall some of the things that happened when I was when I was there when I was in the yard myself. One of the things I was sent on duty to Hallows Cross polling station. I think in 1948. That would that would be normal practice for, for the yard mm-hmm. to be on duty to keep on order in case anybody was stepping out of line. And I, I was there on the morning of the election for, for the opening of the polling station 9 a.m. that time. And it came to nine o'clock and the polling station was still closed. And there was about a half a dozen people going to vote on their way to work. And nobody turned up. We didn't know what was happening. We had no mobile phones in days, no communication. So there was one lad among the, among the few, anyway, and he was becoming a bit of an agitator. His hour had come, you see. He was doing not making the most of it. And he was agitating. Uh, this polling booth wasn't open. It should be open at 9 o'clock this morning. And it was Eventually, the presiding officer arrived. He apologised for the, the delay. He had been misdirected. And it took him all that time to redirect himself and get to the polling But it was opened up. And within five or ten minutes and less, the whole thing was down to normal business of the day. But the agitator, he, he was still at it. And he went in and voted. And he came out. And he was starting all over again. So I thought the same to step in, because other people could join in very quickly, you know, yeah. uh, and to get out. So I went up and I, I, I said, you, you've done your, you, you've done, you've done your, vote, your duty here, you've, done your, you've cast your vote? Yes, I have. Well, I said, isn't that all you have to do here? Well, this is, well I said, I'm giving you a bit of advice. I said, you've done what you came to do, and stick to that. I said, and disappear as quietly as you can, because I'll be keeping an eye on it from now on, and then you step out line and you'll be in trouble. So I got rid of him, eventually. And presiding uh, was delighted about And when the superintendent arrived later in the day, he mentioned the fact that I had handled the situation so well. And Jerry, you get all the compliments in the world, but it doesn't add up. <laughs> you know, it doesn't add up. If you, if you do something out of the way and you're in trouble. And that, the fact that you've done your job and done it well, that doesn't come into the area at all. But uh, that was it. I got rid of him, thanks to God, in good time before he caused a lot of problems.
John's mood changes, obviously, when he returns to tales of friends and colleagues in Angarda Shiokana who are no longer present for one reason or another. Two stories, which we will hear later, concern ex-members of the force. But first, the sad story of a colleague, a young Garda from Kerry, whose first station was in Dublin after leaving the depot. We were in Fitzgibbon's area, we were stationed there, he was stationed there. The situation there was that Store Street was the headquarters of the sea district, but it was a small station downright Bathalus in the centre of the city. It was a small station and it was a headquarters, so there was very little accommodation for members of the force there at all. So the situation was, some people lived in Fitzgibbon's Street, but worked at Store Street. Extra time, they had to hop on a bike in the morning to be down there for six or two o'clock or whatever. They had that extra time to do, coming and going each day. And what, what year are we talking about, John? We're talking about uh, 50, about 1950. 1950. Yeah. You were there at the time. You were I was there at the yeah. time. I was in Fitzgibbon's Street at that time. This young fellow came to us from the depot, fit and well, from from Gall County Kerry, I believe. Sean Boyle, and he had to do that tour of duty when, he, when, he, when, he, when he, his duty came. He had to hop on the bike and be down the store street in good time. So this particular day, he got on his bike and went down to store street at 6 o'clock in the morning, did his tour of duty, and came back to Fiscality for his dinner or lunch in the middle of the day, uh, 2 o'clock. We had a man there called Tom Langan, who was one of the greatest male footballers, full forward, one of the greatest of all time. And Tom said to Sean Boyle, apparently, I wasn't there listening to this, but he must have said to Sean Boyle that he was going to play a game of handball in the, in the alley at the back of the station. And would he come out? And Sean agreed, and they went out to play the game of handball. But Sean took ill. He felt ill and he had a pain in his chest. And it must be fairly severe because they got him they got him back in. He didn't just get in on his own. They got him back into the station and he lived up at the top of the house, making it worse. Three sets of stairs, stone stairs, no carpets, no nothing at all. Right. He got sick on the way up the stairs and they had to mop that up and they got him to bed, sent for Dr. Burke. And poor Dr. Burke had the same ordeal because he, I know he wouldn't leave actually. And he had to climb the stairs. I didn't throw him at all, I'm sure. But he got up there sometime during the afternoon and examined Sean. And he thought, he said, he thought he had a, a touch of uh, rheumatic fever. Where he got that from, I don't know. But that's what he, that was his verdict anyway. And I knew nothing about it. I was out at two, 2 o'clock on duty in Fitzgibbonsy. I came back in at 6 o'clock the, uh, to my tea. And that's the first I had about Sean. It happened and these things do happen. You didn't take too much notice of it. So I went back out at 7 o'clock again, down to the north stand, and I was coming in at 10 o'clock with another member of the force, finished our tour of duty, heading up for the station, and we met a man coming out on duty for the night, off on night duty for 10. He said, in the terror, he said about poor Sean Boyle. I said, yes, he's ill, yes. He said, he's dead. 21, I suppose, years of age. Dead and gone. Whatever it was, the blood clot or whatever it was, he was dead. And of course, who had to go and tell his parents? The local guard down in Kerry, well, I wouldn't want that job. And the poor father travelled up, he was a desolate state. And the mother couldn't come. And for the first time I ever saw the main door of Fitzgibbon's open when they were removed, the removal of the remains, taken out onto his house, taken back to Owen's call for, for, the, for the burial. And did they ever find out what exactly happened? I don't think so. The fact is, was the doctor had been with him, uh, there was no need for a post-mortem, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the attitude, anyway, I'm yeah. sure. He wasn't, there was no post-mortem, as far as I know. He know. felt it was rheumatic fever? As far as the doctor was concerned. Yeah. But I don't think it was actually rheumatic fever when he killed him like that. I said it was a, a blood clot. What else could it be? I don't know. Heart failure. 
And what you said there brings into mind one of the, the toughest jobs that a member of Garda Shikana has is going to a house to inform relatives that a son, a daughter, yeah, yeah. a parent exactly. has, has died. Yeah. Did, did you ever have to do that yourself? No, thank God I never had to do that. I did do a lot of unusual things myself, but not that. Oh God, thank God for that too. Vitae was an encyclical written by Pope Paul VI and dated 25th of July 1968. The text was launched at a Vatican press conference on the 29th of July of that year. Subtitled On the Regulation of Birth, it reaffirmed the teaching of the Catholic Church regarding married love, responsible parenthood, and the rejection of artificial contraception. Here in Ireland, it became known as the Pill. On a night out in Oxford, John makes his way to a local restaurant for chicken and chips. An Oxford student, whom he has never set eyes on before, makes his way to John's table. There is a definite intent on his mind to make fun of the Irish, but in this case, he has met his match. As I walked my way through the meal, this fellow came, young fellow came down with his tray. Do you mind if I sit here? I said, that's what seats are for, isn't it? I said, I have no control over him. So he landed, and of course he had the Irish accent. Maybe he knew in advance, I don't know. He was a student, obviously a student. And he sat down, and uh, some few words we exchanged anyway. And then I became Paddy all of a sudden. Oh, I said, hang on a second. I said, is there somebody here called Paddy? Because I said, I don't see anybody called Paddy here. I said, I, I'm not Paddy. I said, I was baptized John, and there was no mention of Paddy. So that changed his tune a bit. <laughs> but he had, pill, he had the pill very much in mind. He said, by the way, he said, do you go to, do you go to the synagogue down in, in Abingdon Road on a Sunday? I said, if you're referring to the Catholic Church there, yes, I do. Oh, right, right. He said, maybe you tell me. He said, what do you think of the pill? I was stuck. He had me where he wanted me, you know. Inspiration from above. Well, I said, up to this moment, I was telling the truth, up to this moment of time, I said, to be honest with you, I haven't given it much thought. But no, I said, since you, you have brought it up to me, I said, I'll tell you what I do think. I said, about it now, at the spot of the moment. I said, if the pill would have the effect, I said, of getting rid of pests like you in the first instance, I'm all for it. I floored him. Question time was over. In conversation with John O'Leary on Where the Road Takes Me on C103 this evening. Part 3, the final part, is after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Part three of Where the Road Takes Me, and on this Sunday evening, I'm in the Commodore Hotel in Cove, chatting to 97-year-old John O'Leary, whom you've met on several occasions on Where the Road Takes Me. Well, in a previous edition of what has now seemingly become the John O'Leary box set on Where the Road Takes Me, we heard of a goose making its way to Dublin by train for Christmas from West Cork. Inside the goose was a bottle of poutine or Mountain Dew. The goose was dead, of course, and ready for the Christmas table. The bottle of poutine tucked neatly inside. The purpose of the goose was twofold, to protect the bottle of poutine and to hide the real purpose of the parcel from West Cork to Dublin City. The goose and the bottle of the Dew of the Mountain were heading for the Farrell household from West Cork. Con Farrell had been a member of the Garda Siocana with John O'Leary, and when they left the force, they remained close friends. He retired and I found myself living in England, and we keep in contact, and when I'd come home, I'd make sure to contact him, and we'd go for a few jobs, and we had a very good friend there. She was a great woman altogether, Margaret uh, Mulligan. She was a, a widow woman with damn little, to, I suppose, whatever bit of a lulz they got from the state, but you think she was a millionaire? That, uh, she carried herself so well. A very strict woman uh, in living and all the rest of it, but she was a very good, to a great person drop in. If you were out at 6 o'clock in the morning uh, on duty, and you hadn't had a cup of tea or a Great places up in for a cup of coffee for if you were on the North Circular Road. One time I was home, she had moved from where we knew her, alongside the Lowry's Pub in the North Circular. She had moved to a new apartment in a few states away. There were modern apartments provided, and she was living upstairs, but there was a lift in the, in the place. And uh, I, I always made sure I visited her because she was a wonderful woman. And I was with the, with the this time, and she said to me, Do you know, she said, I, have I been in touch with Confather? I said, uh, not really. I said, at the moment. She said, he was very disappointed the last time you were around that uh, that she didn't meet. We had him in a pint pen, apparently. And I said to her, well, that's the way he goes. I said, you make it a pint pen with good, with good intentions, and you meet somebody else when you're home and holiday, and, that, and you're thrown off course. So it prevented us meeting, and I'm sorry about it. But I'll tell her what I'll do now. I said, I'm, I'm going to meet another member of the force now, another ex-member of the force now. I said, my former station sergeant, Mark Sharkey, out at Harold's Cross. And uh, I said, before I go to him, I said, I'm, I'll, I'll leave here. I go down into a country, I said, I'll, the public phones, we had no private phones in days, the public phones. I'll make a call from one of the phone boxes to Con's house and see if he's at work because he had taken on a job 7 to 12 or something in the front palace down the bottom of O'Connor Street and I was hoping I'd, be, I'd meet him there so I did what I thought, said I'd do got onto, the, got onto the phone box in O'Connor Street and called the house and his wife answered the phone and I said is, is Con there is he going to work he's gone to work she said and he's gone there against my wishes I thought what's wrong she said he's dying with, with cold or flu dying with it he should be in bed and I tried to persuade him, she said, but it's kind of a stubborn man, she said, and he, he's gone in spite of me. Well, I said, 
I'll, I'll make contact with him now, and yes, as I rang at all, put him on the phone, and I headed down to, down to the bottom of O'Connor Street and into the Fun Palace. And I looked around the Fun Palace, and I couldn't see Con. And I saw them, what I thought was the boss, and I called him. I said, I'm looking for Con Farrell. I said, he's, he's one of your staff here on the security side. Con, he said, yeah, he, I, I haven't seen him. He said, he's not in. Well, I said, the one thing I can tell you, he left for work. And I said, he's dying with flu or cold. And he probably hasn't been to Mali, as I said, or from well as that, for a drop of whiskey and maybe a drop of punch. It's a war and such up. So that was that. And I went, went to met Mark Sharkey, and we had the usual session down the garlic club, and all the rest of it. Went back to England in due course, and I went to week in England where I got a letter from, from Mrs Mulligan, and I cut out the paper in obituary notice, Confal. He got on the bus at Fairview. He came into North Street at the junction of North Street, a few, few yards from his place of work, and dropped dead. Hit the ground, it was all over. Uh, he was shot at a Martin Hospital close by and pronounced dead. Wasn't that wicked? And who, who had to go and tell her? McGarrett. Had to be. God Almighty. You couldn't believe it. But he was stubborn, like myself. We're also, which well, Scott people are. <laughs> but that was that about poor, poor old Confarrell. He was dead and gone. And I was sorry for it because he, he was a good natured man and would looked after the home and he, he had a little plot of ground as well. You know, they had him plots that got him in the war, the war time yeah. for vegetables. And he'd always bring a head of cabbage or a few potatoes up to Mrs. Mulligan. And she'd, be, she'd appreciate it very much. But that, 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 that's how Con left us in the end. There was no more putting, no more bottle of putting arriving at Christmas. Or no more geese no, travelling uh, up to Christmas. No to more geese either, indeed. They survived instead. <laughs> well, God Almighty. Just uh, recapping that story about the goose again for me. Con, he'd invite me down to, at Christmas time because this was the story. Every Christmas, they send him up a goose from, from Dunmanway, from Money Ray, and a bottle of putting inside it. So the best way to carry it. The, the ghost would the ghost protect the, the bottle from being broken. And then we'd, we'd deal with it when it arrived at the destination. And uh, he, right up to the, the end, he got that. So the bottle of poteen would come covered by the goose? Absolutely, absolutely. That was the insurance policy. policy. <laughs> 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 okay. Oh, God almighty. It's a real great time, there's no doubt about it. Takashiakana were a temporary guard force recruited at the beginning of World War II. Apparently, they had the same powers as regular guardi, but not the same benefits like pensions, etc. Four or five members of Antakashiakana were sent to Fitzgibbon Street, where John O'Leary was stationed. One of them, whose name was John, became close friends with John O'Leary, even after retiring from the force. There are many lessons to be learned from this particular story, which has a tragic ending. A hard man. Put the zinc, same as myself. We had a lot in common, then. <laughs> we had the glass in common, the pint in common. No bother to us at all. To was our source of recreation, to our source of consolation, because uh, getting away from the reality of the, the, the dwelling place itself, the, the old station, a beautiful station from outside, and a, a bloody primitive place inside. But uh, yeah, we often had a good few days together, and often had a good few arguments together. We were on both sides, of, we were on the two sides of the Civil War, uh, politically. But we agreed in an awful lot of things as well. 
And we were very good friends. He must have gone to a dance in, in Parnell Square some night. Why he went there? Because he, would, he, hadn't, he hadn't danced his feet. <laughs> and he wasn't a dancing man. But he went there and he met this girl, Margaret from Galway, a nurse. And uh, they dated and they dated and they met again and again and again. And, went, and half the time, when he'd be supposed to meet, that he'd be plastered. And I'd have to go to the phone and make excuses for him. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be able to do it himself. And I'd have to do it. I tried to send it to him. Said, oh, this isn't fair. And all this... Uh, but it went on, and I wonder how she never came to the conclusion that he was cancelling dates and all the rest of it. And it went on for ages, and nobody thought any different of it. But one day he said to me, Margaret and myself are getting married, he said, and we would both like you to be old best man. I said, fine, if that's what you want, I'll do the best I can. Agreed, no more about it. The date was set and all the rest of it. And as it happened... I was invited to another wedding a week, a fortnight before John's wedding. Uh, a Scots lad and a local butcher's daughter. He used to drink with us in McGoldish pub there at Rukwanda. Uh, and we were all great friends. And when the, when the occasion arose, he invited us to, to the wedding. And we had the day of the wedding and the, day, and the wedding itself. And they were flying out of, out of Dublin Airport back to Scotland for the honeymoon in the afternoon. And we accompanied them all the way up to the Dublin airport and waved them off from the balcony above and they took, they took their flight to, to Glasgow. And uh, that was that. And they were coming back in a fortnight afterwards, the very night before John and Margaret's wedding. They were coming back to, to Alfie Finn's and his wife's house for a bit of a celebration. And I was invited there too. I was popular enough with some people at that time. <laughs> so I was invited and of course I wasn't going to miss it. God almighty, how would I? So I went there. And I stayed there at about half eleven, maybe twelve o'clock, and I was the best man the following day. I came into Fitzgibbon Street that year, and I'm sure I had more than one or two, and uh, we were up and up, up and running, or up and walking, anyway, in the morning, and had a, a bit of breakfast. And as we dressed for the, for the occasion, he produced a bottle of whiskey. And by God, we had a good slug of that. Before, before the wedding? Before the, we departed for the, for the wedding. Yeah. So it was a good, a good stimulant for the, for the day. And back from there, to a place called the Cumberland Hotel in Westland Row. So we nearly opposite Westland Row Station. And they had a purpose in that, you see. They were going from there on their honeymoon down to Galway. The train would be just across the road from Now, the party went so well that they damn nearly forgot to get the train. The train they didn't get the train, they meant to get anyway. Crossing the road, they were late. <laughs> they were late to get the train. And they were going to Galway. They were heading for Galway. Yeah. But we were all well-oiled at that stage, I'm telling you. By God, we were well-oiled. And the, the priest was a Franciscan, and he was going here in confessions. And I said to him, Christ, I'm going to the box tonight. I said, it'll be all right. You'll be asleep in that. <laughs> they'll, they'll accept I have an absolution anyway. So, and then the, the, that part of it was over. We headed downtown, and nothing to do was but to go into a Wynn's Hotel, of all places. Landed inside. And the couple were gone to Galway. They sort of, were gone. Yeah. We had sent them off. And I started to sing, and I was silenced very quickly, I tell you, we got the road, out the door. So, th that was it. They went on their honeymoon, and we knew no more, there was no welcome home or anything like that, I don't know why, they didn't have any, any welcoming party. And one day, John said to me, you mentioned to Margaret, he said, you had a wedding present for them, and she's expecting you out to deliver it, you know, to bring it out. I can take that day off. And I'll wait for you at two o'clock at, the, at, the, at the, the office above, and we'll travel over together. The day came, two o'clock came, half past two came, three o'clock came, 
Harper's three came. I thought, where is that all wrong? And I said to myself, I better get out there because she'll take game with him. I went over to the house. Margaret answered the phone and burst into a flood of tears. And that was the situation I was left with that, that afternoon. It went on and on. We didn't have much to talk about because she was in that state. And I was so embarrassed about it, but I was glad of one thing that, I, that she knew I wasn't with him anyway. Finally, he arrived in the evening. The overcoat wide open. The cap side was his head. I think, I think he hit his head off the wall when he, when he got the door open. And, and came from there, flopped into the, flopped into the living room. And he was all blathered. Margaret, Margaret, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Margaret. I'm sorry, Margaret. Hit me a slap, hit me a slap, hit me a slap. And she took the question. I, I couldn't wait to get away. I, I couldn't leave immediately. But I made my excuses and left. And I never went back. It was a pure, it was an eye-opener to me. Never get married if, as long as you have an attitude to alcohol. It won't work. And you're just signed two lines instead of one. It wasn't fair to Margaret. So anyway, I was back from the court and I, I, I dipped into the Shakespeare bar and who walked in with John. He was looking for me to tell me I was actually being transferred that afternoon. I don't think I ever met him after that at all. I can't think. We never met. I didn't, I didn't want to get involved. And I went into, I left the guards and went to England eventually. This is, this is a sad part now. Apparently John had retired from, from the force and he had got a job in uh, the Martha Day Institute at the top of Clarenliffe Road. So this particular day, apparently, he came into work on his car from, from Findlay's, parked his car, and went into the office to get himself tugged out of whatever he had to do for his job outside. And he looked out the window, and there were two young buckers from Ballybock down the bottom of the road, getting into the car. So he was panicked, of course, he ran out, he rushed out, and they were actually in the car at this stage, and revving it up. He must have left the bloody keys in the car. That's a man of security and, 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 and left the keys in the car. So what, what did he do? He rushed out to the gate. They were ready, up, they were ready for him. And they drove straight at him. He held up his hand, stopping him. They threw him up in the air. He came down on his head. And he lived a week in a coma. I knew nothing about it. I was in Birmingham on the eve of Christmas. Not Christmas Eve, itself, but the, the eve of the, the day before. I came home and there was cards on the floor, loads of bloody cards and letters and all the rest of it. Always, when I'd be at home I, at that time of the day, I turned on radio in for the one o'clock news of every day. And I had it on this particular afternoon. I was in the, in the living room and the last item of the news of that day was the death of the court of a former Garda uh, who was involved in, a, in, in a, an accident a week ago. He had died Christmas morning, Christmas, Christmas Eve. That was a happy Christmas. I fell back into the chair and wept like a child. We were great friends. And we had a hell of a lot in common. It broke my heart. It absolutely, I couldn't cope with it. The, the thought of, I couldn't dare to go to the funeral. So that was it. That was the story of John. And that's where we leave Cove and John O'Leary on this week's edition of Where the Road Takes Me. John assures me that there's plenty more from where that came from. Thank you to John Foot on Sound and to you for sharing time with us. Until Sunday evening next at 7 on C103, from myself, John Green, have a safe and enjoyable week. Goodbye for now. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.